Good morning. It's 930, 80 degrees and partly cloudy in St. Louis. Time now to venture forth to St. Paul Lutheran Church in De Pere for this morning's Bible class. Can't quite hear our radio cue from here, but I think it's time to begin. Uh, and let's begin with a prayer. It's from Eric Milner White, slightly adapted. O most Holy Spirit, you come as Christ once came to Bethlehem to a most mean dwelling. You come to me, but you can make it clean and make it a temple, your temple. You can fill it with holiness, love, and joy. So come, O Spirit of God, with God the Father's love, by Christ's body and blood, in the new birth of your own breath. Come to cover my littlenesses and consume my sins, to direct all my desires and doings. Come with counsel for my confusion, with light from your everlasting scriptures. Come to reveal the deep things of God and what he prepares for those who love him. Come with your prayer into mine. O most Holy Spirit, possess me by your peace, illuminate me by your truth, fire me by your flame, enable me by your power, be made visible in me by your fruits, lift me by grace upon grace, from glory to glory, O Spirit of the Lord, who are with the Father and the Son, one God, world without end. Amen. Just thinking a moment ago, uh, while we were waiting to begin, that it, it seems odd somehow to, to wish people a happy Pentecost. I don't know, do you greet people like that today? Happy Pentecost? Uh, I think that's never really become our custom, and uh, I'll come back to that in a moment. I think there may actually be a reason uh, why we don't tend to do that. Uh, I want to pick it up uh, where we left off last week in Acts chapter 2. We're really sort of setting the stage for Peter's first message. This will be the first proclamation by a follower of Jesus after his death and resurrection. So it's a very important moment in the history of the Christian church and for us individually as Christians. Uh, we had talked a little bit about the day uh, what that meant, that this was not the first Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost was a long-standing holiday on the uh, Israel's calendar. We'll come back to that as we wrap up some of these introductory thoughts. Uh, but we are talking about the three things that Luke says happened that day. Uh, we had read together verses 2 through 4 uh, and talked about the rushing wind uh, we talked a little bit about these uh, divided uh, tongues as of fire that uh, split. So a light came down and then it divided and rested on the head of each person present. And we talked about both of those things as uh, symbols or signs of the presence of God uh, in a place and among people. Um, the third thing that Luke tells us happened, the third thing that was either visible or audible was what? That's the one we usually think of first. As the people there began to do what? Speak in other tongues uh, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Um, I think we often focus so much of our attention on this because it seems like the most unusual thing of all. Uh, and we're really not quite sure what it is. And, of course, there's a lot of confusion among Christians. Um, is this something we're supposed to be doing? Uh, if not, am I less than a full Christian? Or what does this mean for my own uh, spiritual life? Um, the way the story unfolds, I think, pretty well explains what was happening here. Uh, and certainly later the focus will be on hearing not on speaking. Um, 
But I think it's important to, uh, to note at this point, first of all, that uh, the whole phenomenon called speaking in tongues seems to get an inordinate amount of attention uh, when we're studying especially Acts and Paul. Uh, it's really not talked about all that often. And there are entire letters of Paul that don't mention it at all. Uh, letters that talk about the full, whole Christian life uh, that never speak of this. Uh, the second thing is, I think we've been a little too influenced uh, by groups who focus on uh, speaking in tongues in the sense of speaking in unknown languages, uh, non-human languages, uh, angelic or mystic speech or something like that. Uh, I think when New Testament authors mean that, they're very specific and call it that. Uh, when they don't, when they simply talk about other tongues or languages, uh, they're talking about languages that we may not know personally, but we know exist in the world, like German or Russian or French, uh, Chinese or Spanish or languages like that. And uh, uh, some have said if Luke was wanting us to understand that sort of unknown uh, mystical language, he would have just said speaking in tongues, not in other tongues, uh, that is, other uh, human languages. And clearly the people who were there didn't say, what are these men talking about? Because it just sounds like gibberish to me. I don't understand any of it. But one group said, no, I hear them speaking in this language. And another group said, no, I hear them speaking in, in our language. Uh, so they were clearly speaking in languages that the crowd there could understand. And uh, that's entirely appropriate because what were the apostles told would happen after Jesus rose from the dead? What was the rest of the history of the world going to be about? About a proclamation, about a message going out into the whole world. Uh, that can't happen if you're speaking in languages that no one in the world can understand. Um, so this is uh, an important moment. Uh, again, uh, one thing that, that I think Acts uh, can help show us is that even when we think of our sort of personal day-to-day -day, uh, sharing with others of our faith, uh, we almost immediately begin to think of obstacles, don't we? What if he doesn't understand what I'm trying to say? Uh, what if this is going to sound really strange to her? What if we won't be able to be friends anymore after I bring this up? What if it's embarrassing? Uh, well, the book of Acts shows us again and again that there is no obstacle that can get in the way of this message going out. Um, from the book of uh, the end of Luke, uh, the risen Lord had said, these things stand written. The sun uh, suffers and dies. The sun rises from the dead. And repentance and forgiveness are proclaimed in his name. So the pro proclamation is as certain and sure as his death and resurrection. So it will happen. And we begin to see it happen right here. We were talking last week about some of the Old Testament connections with this scene. And what does this part of it make you think of? Maybe not directly, maybe sort of in reverse. Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, and what happened there? God confused the languages. Okay, there was a confusion of languages for what reason? Halt the building project, uh, and I'll push you one step further. And why did he want to halt the building project? Okay, because the human beings all together thought they were so strong, uh, they could build a tower up to where God rules and reigns and dwells, and they could make that their home too. Uh, that's how glorious they thought uh, we humans are. And just to show them how foolish an idea that is, uh, 
God brought about this confusion of languages, uh, this division among human beings, uh, humanity into different uh, nations, different tribes, different people groups, and we've been suffering with that division ever since. Right? So what does Pentecost have to do with that? It's not a repeat of Babel, right? It's, it's, the reverse. it's the reverse of Babel. So it's a kind of undoing of Babel so that this fundamental division in humanity uh, which makes it impossible for us to understand each other is already being overcome. So language will not be an obstacle as this word, uh, this message goes forth. Um, hey, last week, uh, one of you mentioned uh, that especially this idea of lights resting on them, uh, light as a symbol of God's presence, made you think of the Exodus. Uh, with the pillar of fire, uh, which was God's presence leading the people of Israel uh, from where to where? From Egypt, uh, which was what kind of place for the children of Israel? Captivity, Captivity bondage, slavery, leading them out of that to... Sinai, the promised land, Canaan, a place where they would have a home, uh, where they would experience then uh, liberty and freedom and live as children of God. Um, I think it's very good to see the connections between the whole Exodus narrative and this portion of both, the, again, the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. Uh, and that was the point of this second handout I prepared for this week. Um, the other one was the same as last Sunday. Uh, did anyone need a copy of this little table? Okay. Uh, oh. I think we often think too narrowly of the connection between this story and what's happening in the life of our Lord. Uh, when Jesus gathers with his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem, uh, just moments, hours before his death, what are they doing there? Celebrating the Passover. Celebrating the Passover. Uh, which commemorated what? Exodus. Okay, this sudden departure from Egypt uh, by the power of God's uh, right arm. Um, they had this very unusual meal because it had to be prepared quickly and consumed quickly, and the people then had to be ready to go as soon as they received this word from the Lord. We think, well, that's extremely appropriate that on that particular night when all of Israel is celebrating this mighty act of God's deliverance, that Jesus should transform the meaning of that night and say from now on when you celebrate this, you're not going to be celebrating something that happened way back then. You're going to be celebrating something that's happening in and through me right now. But there are really more connections to the whole story than just that. And uh, if you go clear back to Luke 9, uh, you can see Luke has this very unusual wording here when he's telling us about the transfiguration of Jesus. Um, most of the details there will be very familiar to you. Uh, so in Luke 9, this is verse 30. Uh, he's telling us what suddenly appeared. Uh, not only was Jesus' uh, physical appearance transfigured to this very glorious appearance, but then Luke says, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, the word Luke uses there in Greek 
is exodon, which gives us our exodus. It's the way out of something, the exit, the departure. Um, and if we think uh, that this is more than just a sort of coincidental play on words, we can see that Luke is suggesting here uh, actually the whole story Moses, Elijah, and Jesus all together are suggesting that we think of this as his exodus. Not just his exit, but his exodus, his leading forth of a new people of Israel from bondage, slavery, and captivity to a new and glorious promised land, a new home of freedom. And if you start with Passover and then the festival of unleavened bread, which followed immediately after that, um, again, what's happening in New Israel's calendar at this point? The Passover, I just mentioned the Last Supper, but also the crucifixion. So, and John, uh, in his gospel, especially makes that close connection that as Jesus was dying on the cross, the lambs were being prepared uh, for the Passover offering. Um, so if we begin there, uh, that happens in our springtime, March or April. It's the beginning of the year in the Hebrew calendar. Um, then we go to the next festival is First Fruits, um, which is the very earliest kind of thank offering, uh, celebrating the bounty uh, that the Lord has given in this new promised land. Uh, and who is the first fruits from the dead? Christ Jesus, our Lord. So again, his resurrection corresponds very closely to this idea that the harvest, uh, the great gathering in has already begun. And here's the first demonstration, the first proof of it. Uh, the Lord Jesus himself has risen from the dead. And then we get to our day today, Pentecost, which again you see is, is now several weeks later, uh, 50 days after Passover. Uh, the earliest harvest festival, the first crops are coming due. Uh, and with joy and thankfulness, uh, Israel gathers those. Uh, celebrates the blessings of this early harvest, and then, of course, prays that God will bless them with an abundant final harvest. Um, that's right where we are in the story. Uh, to a, a son of Israel who knew this pattern of, of this annual cycle, this yearly life, um, Pentecost would immediately make him think ahead to what? This is the first and earliest harvest, the next final great harvest. And that's what uh, uh, Israel celebrated as the Feast of Tabernacles, um, where originally uh, they actually built little booths or temporary shelters right in the fields uh, so that people could work around the clock to bring in the harvest. Um, even in Israel's history, these the two cycles, sort of the Exodus pattern and the agrarian pattern of harvest, merged together uh, so that tabernacles also became a remembrance of the time when Israel had no permanent dwelling, uh, when they were on their journey and uh, lived in tents and uh, temporary shelters where even God, remember, dwelt in a tabernacle uh, before a, a house of stone, a temple was made for him, uh, and the fact that now they're in uh, their real home. Uh, so for all those things, they give thanks to God. It was the great culmination then uh, of their year, both in terms of, of uh, produce, uh, farming, and uh, preparing uh, food for the, the next months to come, uh, but also then of remembering how God has delivered them not only from starvation uh, and uh, uh, the weather by giving them food and shelter, 
but also for eternal life, uh, to be his people forever uh, by delivering them from the bondage in Egypt. Um, so all of these things always looked forward as well as celebrating something God had done in the past. Um, and I think that may be one reason why it seems odd to say Happy Pentecost. Because Pentecost is such a day of anticipation. Right? We're looking forward to something. We know we're not there yet. Uh, we're excited. Uh, we're grateful for what God has done. Uh, but we know this isn't the end. This isn't where we all sit down and say, we've arrived, we're here, uh, thanks be to God. Um, so we too look forward to that day uh, when uh, that great final uh, gathering is made, that final harvest, um, and all people are gathered together. And then we can say, happy tabernacles, right? Because then we're here, and then it's done. Uh, we're all together. Okay. Uh, since this is uh, our Pentecost as well, uh, I had asked you at the end of the hour last time, uh, what do you celebrate on this day? Uh, and uh, now you get your chance to tell me, uh, well, the beginning of another week, uh, favorite hymns in church, uh, things like that. Uh, but it, there are a couple thoughts that always come to my mind. Uh, one, uh, and this has to do with, uh, with wardrobe. Um, you know, the term flamboyant actually comes from the term for flame or burning. Uh, so I think uh, if there is a day in the Christian calendar when we should be a little flamboyant, uh, it's today, right? We don't necessarily need to get the purple hats out, uh, but I think it's a great day uh, to wear a little color, to say we too are happy. For us, it's the end of a long winter, uh, the arrival, well, practically the end of spring this year, the arrival of summer, um, but it's time for us to be joyful and say we're still on the journey, but look how God has supported us along the way. And look what he's done for us all this time as we've been walking as his people. Another, perhaps uh, slightly more sobering thought um, shows that maybe the problem isn't a modern one because this comes from an ancient African sermon uh, when the preacher asked his people, when was the last time your faith made you so joyful that someone accused you of having too much to drink. Uh, I don't think most visitors, when they come to one of our Pentecost services, would say, they've been in the wine, right? Uh, now we look a little too uh, staid. Uh, they might say, oh, they've been into the sleeping pills again. Uh, so Pentecost is a time to wake up, time to be a little flamboyant, uh, and celebrate the joy we have uh, in our Lord. Okay. Uh, those were the three things that everyone could see and or hear. But Luke says there's something else that happened. And what was that? Uh, in his report there in verses uh, 2 through 4, I sort of jumped over this at the beginning of verse 4. What else happened to those people who were there? How does verse 4 start? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, how would you know that? Well... How do you know that, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit? Because Luke tells us they were, right? Can you trust Luke? Yeah, I think he's a pretty trustworthy narrator. So he's, just, he's not just making it up. This isn't just his conclusion. He's writing by the inspiration of that same spirit 
trying to explain to us what's happening to these men and women gathered there that day. Uh, so he tells us they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, up to this point, though, in the biblical story, when someone was filled with the Spirit of the Lord, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, what did that usually mean? They would prophesy. The Lord would fill someone with his Spirit because he was intending to speak and act through them. And they stand out as very unusual individuals called to a particular office or work uh, and then given this measure of God's Spirit to carry out that work so that people would know that this just wasn't a human activity. This was God at work through his agents. Uh, so even though we may be asking why these people, why right now, we already have some sense of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see more of that uh, as the rest of the chapter unfolds. Um, again, that also helps us understand the connection between being filled with the Spirit and speaking in many different languages. Uh, the Spirit is God's breath that fills our lungs, that opens our mouths and makes our lips move. Uh, and the sole purpose of this Spirit is to give testimony to the Lord. And here he begins to do it uh, in a way that will include everyone present. Now, one other question uh, that I want to bring up here. It's a little more technical, but I think it's important uh, for the rest of the book as well. And uh, Dr. Veltz isn't back uh, so uh, I won't have to spend a lot of time parsing the verb for you. Um, but both in English and in Greek, the verb there, they were filled with the Spirit, is a past tense. Uh, in Greek, it's the aorist tense. Uh, and the question that I continue to wrestle with is, what are we to make of the way this is reported here? Uh, is this reporting an action or event that has just now taken place? Or is it reporting a condition or a, a state of being that was true at this time and it's important for us to know? Um, because it could be either one, right? Um, you know, if we had a glass of water sitting up here, uh, full of water, uh, I could say uh, the glass was filled with water as I'm pouring the water into it, or I could say it because it was full when you walked into the room. There's no easy grammatical answer here. You can't point to a Greek book and say this is what it means. Uh, but it's interesting to see how this particular verb is used in some other places. And I thought we, I think it's important enough, we can take a few minutes and look at a few of those other verses together uh, this morning. First of all, let's turn back to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. And we won't spend a lot of time discussing each one of these, but we'll look for what's filled and sort of what kind of, of action is it describing. Uh, so someone could read that verse, uh, Luke 1, 15, for us. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Okay. Now, do you remember who the he is in this verse? This is John the Baptist, right? So this is a prophecy about John the Baptist. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> of course, it means from birth, but the Greek has from his mother's womb. Uh, and I think it's nice that the... Uh, ESV keeps that language in there because what happens next involves John while he's still in his mother's womb. Uh, 
Um, now, what about the filling at this point? He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Does that sound like a sort of one-time action or a, a, a condition that's going to be characteristic of John? Sounds more like the condition idea here, doesn't it? Um, certainly he wouldn't be filled just in his mother's womb for that one moment, but he's going to be a great prophet. So his whole life, even from before his birth, is going to be characterized by this uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, now, if you turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 28, a slightly different example. can read verse 28 for us from Luke 4. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Okay. So that was a reaction. Right. So here it sounds like a reaction that happened right at that moment because we're told what triggered this being filled with something. Uh, they heard these things. Uh, do you know what those things were? It's right after Jesus' first sermon, right? And the exchange that follows that. Uh, so they were filled with wrath, and uh, clearly here it sounds like that moment. Um, now let's get back to Acts, but we'll jump ahead to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 8. Can you read that for us, please? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. Okay, yeah, we'll just stop there. We just want to get that phrase about being filled. Uh, this is my question. That's why I bring this up. Um, and maybe in the long run it doesn't matter all that much. Um, but how do you picture this? Because Peter's among those people who's filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, correct? So this verse in Acts 4, does that mean again or still? So we need to know this again in chapter 4 because otherwise we might be mistaken in thinking that when we listen to Peter's sermon, we're listening to whom? Just to Peter. So even though grammatically, I don't think you can answer with 100% confidence this question of again or still, Luke thinks it's important for the reader to know at each point that when this man speaks, he's speaking under the power of God's Holy Spirit. Uh, one uh, more, actually, sort of pair of verses here. We jump ahead to Acts chapter 9, verse 17. Nine verse seventeen. Would you read that for us, please? So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, "Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit." Okay. So I think we probably all recall what's happening at this point. Um, Acts 9, that's the first account we get of the, uh, what we usually call the conversion of Saul, uh, that encounter between Saul and the risen Lord Jesus on the way to Damascus. 
Uh, and you know the, all the drama that happens at that moment, the falling to the ground, the uh, being stricken blind. Uh, now God sends again another instrument, this Ananias, uh, somewhat reluctant instrument in this case, uh, to go visit this man and to lay hands on him. And he says, when I lay hands on you, this is the purpose, this is what will follow. Uh, you'll regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly when that filling with the Holy Spirit happened, uh, but we do know when the regaining of the sight happened, right? When did that happen? Immediately. And I think the natural assumption is that the filling of the Spirit also happens immediately because then Paul um, immediately begins his career as a Christian preacher. Yeah, um, <clears throat> and it gets hard to answer because of this thing, and this is part of the reason I want to spend some time with this. Um, let's put that question on hold. Did it happen at the moment of his baptism? And let's look at the last verse I, I wanted to look at on this theme of being filled, and that's Acts chapter 13, verse 9. Acts 13, verse 9. Someone read that for us. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Okay. Very dramatic pause there uh, with Paul staring intently at you. Uh, but uh, here uh, we have the same verb. Uh, in a slightly different form in terms of Greek. It's a participle here, an aorist participle. And I won't put anyone on the spot and ask how we translate aorist participles, however sorely tempted I might be to do that. But, um, but the formula we use in our elementary Greek class, one of my students is in the room, so, uh, is having been whatever the verb is. So a, a beginning Greek student would translate this in the simplest way, which was Saul, also called Paul, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Uh, so here again you have this idea that it's describing something that's already true of Paul, not something that's happening at this moment, but something that you need to know about Paul before you listen and see what he does next. Uh, so, uh, the conclusion here isn't 100% uh, certain, uh, but it at least shows you that uh, authors use this idea in both ways, this being filled, uh, but that uh, these particular men who work as God's spokespeople uh, seem to have this spirit uh, filling them, and then at various moments they will act because that spirit is in them. Uh, Personally, I, I think that's the better way than to think the Spirit comes, is taken away, and is given back to them the next time they need it, and then taken away again. Uh, about that, these are people now, and remember, we're talking about this whole group of Christians, not just a few men, uh, but this whole group of Christians on, on Pentecost uh, morning are filled with the Spirit of the Lord uh, and made His. Now, your question about baptism is important for a couple of reasons, and the reason I couldn't just give you a, an immediate, straightforward answer is that I think we tend today to think of the Spirit's work as too small and too narrow. Uh, we think that the Spirit does what in us? Works faith. And for many people, that's the only thing they think the Spirit does anymore, is work faith. Now, is that an important thing? 
but we might say it's the important thing, right? Without that, none of these other gifts or any of that stuff would matter or accomplish anything. And all those other gifts and things flow from that faith and serve to uphold that faith. Um, does everyone who is baptized receive the same spirit that Paul received when he was baptized? Yes. Does everyone do through that spirit the same things that Paul did? There we would say no. And I wanted to explain my answer before I just said yes or no, and you would think uh, I was wrong either way. Um, we do all receive this spirit. Are we God's spirit-filled people today? Yes. I hope so. Um, I believe so. But are we all called to be apostles or evangelists or prophets or teachers? Certainly not. God uses that spirit to fill our lives in various ways, depending on the vocations he's given us individually. So the spirit's work becomes very personalized, very individualized uh, in each of us as he works through our vocations. Okay. Uh, I was just going to, at this point, uh, look at verses 5 through 13. Maybe before I do that, let me pause briefly for any questions or comments uh, at this point. We've already introduced a little bit of what follows. We're going to get the details here. Uh, I would ask someone to read that out loud for us, but this is the one passage no one wants to, to get when they volunteer to be lector for the church service, right? Uh, you get to read all of these uh, strange-sounding place names. But I will... Is there a volunteer who wants to uh, try? Okay. Yes. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, a multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying... Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Okay. Do you have to read that this morning? That sounded like you had practiced that. So. Okay. Very well done. Um, yeah, I've... Uh, tended to let this turn into a, a lecture period, which I didn't uh, intend to do. Uh, so I really wanted to just ask for questions and comments at this point. Uh, but there are a few things I want to note sort of like as footnotes to the text uh, that might come up anyway. Uh, let me get a few of those out of the way right, of the, right away while you think of um, questions you have about this section of Acts. Uh, first of all, uh, it says there were dwelling in Jerusalem. Uh, the word there for dwelling uh, could also be translated staying. Uh, it doesn't mean this is your permanent address. It can mean any really length of visit, usually more than an overnight um, but it doesn't necessarily mean they had moved back from these various countries to live in Jerusalem. But it could mean that. Uh, and it's hard to know at this point how to regard all of these people. Uh, but we do also know uh, that Jerusalem swelled to several times its normal size uh, during Passover. And if people came to celebrate Passover from far away, uh, like these countries that are listed here, they tended to stay also for that month and then celebrate Pentecost, which was another one of those festivals that every 
member of Israel was supposed to celebrate every year, uh, but uh, foreign Jews tried to celebrate at least once in their lifetime in Jerusalem. Um, so uh, both are possible um, and both are, are uh, well, could even be a mix of the two. Uh, but just so you know that the word doesn't require that they be permanent residents of Jerusalem. Okay. The second thing, what kind of people are these that we're talking about? They're Jews. Now, when we get into that list of countries where they're living, it's important we don't lose sight of the fact that we're talking about only Jews at this point. So we're not talking about Romans and Greeks and even Arabians in that sense, but we're talking about Jews who live in these various places. Now, they've obviously lived there long enough that they've picked up these languages, right? So uh, in that sense, uh, Jerusalem may seem like a foreign country, like uh, those of us with names like Oswald who go back to Germany and think, I don't understand any of these people. What, what are they saying? Um, so, so Hebrew or even Aramaic may have been a language they barely understood, even though they were Jews. Um, so we're talking only about Jews here. Um, and then finally, uh, I'll just I'll make, mention one other and then see what questions you have. Uh, in verse 7, uh, the crowd says, Are not all the, these who are speaking Galileans? Now that suggests at this point that we're probably dealing with a smaller number of followers of Jesus, at least the ones they're hearing speaking. Um, so not the whole uh, gathering of Christians who would have included uh, non-Galileans, people from Jerusalem uh, and uh, other areas other than Galilee. But when you hear that term Galilean, what does that suggest to you? Okay. And I'm wondering if they were also considered country bumpkins. <laughs> yes. Com compared to the people that live south of Jerusalem. Right. So both of those would be true in this New Testament world, uh, and they're connected as well, because there's a focus on language here, and the focus gets so specific that we start to talk about accent and dialect. Not just aren't all those people speaking uh, Aramaic speakers, but they're in particular Galileans. Uh, but also it's remarkable that they're Galileans speaking in Arabic because Galileans were known for not having much education, not being very cosmopolitan or world travelers, uh, and like you said, being sort of backwoods uh, country bumpkins. Uh, we'll see that same idea come up uh, very shortly uh, when Peter and John speak and the leaders in Jerusalem refer to them as what? As unlearned and ignorant men. Uh, how is it that they speak so eloquently, so fluently uh, when that really means what? When we didn't sign their diploma. They weren't educated by us. Where did they get this learning? Um, so that same theme will come up again uh, with them as Galileans. I think for the reader, there's one other thing that's maybe in the back of our minds, but it's there nevertheless. And you also alluded to that, which is when is the last time in the story that the problem of someone being a Galilean came up? Peter, uh, at the arrest and trial of Jesus, uh, you are a Galilean, you were with him, weren't you? And then Peter has what kind of response? I don't even know him. Uh, it's just a coincidence I happen to be from Galilee and speak like this. I'm not connected with him. 
Well, and so you see there's more being undone here than just Babel, right? But now this Galilean, actually this whole group of them, will respond with a very strong testimony uh, to the Lord Jesus. Uh, and that's what will follow uh, in the rest of the chapter. Okay. Any questions you have about this section or things that strike you as you read it again this morning? By the way, uh, uh, if you have the handout from last week, you can see a map at the bottom, which if you're as bad with maps as I am, you can see how much of the region we're actually talking about, uh, where these people all came from. I always come prepared with my own questions in case the class doesn't have any. Uh, so. Let's make uh, good use of these last few minutes here and just interrupt uh, if, uh, you, if something uh, comes to mind. Um, we said uh, that this phenomenon of people hearing uh, these men speaking in other languages is like the undoing of Babel. But it's not quite, right? Because we're only talking about Jews at this point. And the only thing that divides these Jews would be language and address. But they would still identify with each other as children of Abraham, uh, sons of Israel. And so in that sense, it's a foreshadowing of the kind of mighty things that God's going to do through these proclaimers. If they can bring Israel together, then what can happen? Sort of like us saying, if we could just unite all the Lutherans, imagine what could happen in the world. So, so this ingathering, this unity uh, that, that's being brought about by this uh, word of the risen Christ through his spirit uh, begins with the people of Israel. Uh, it says they uh, gathered... Uh, together when they heard the sound. Uh, what sound? <clears throat> yeah, is it the sound like a mighty wind or is it the sound of men speaking in lots of different languages together? It's, um, it's as hard to answer as the question of where exactly are they standing when this happens. Uh, so they must be public enough that these men can gather together to figure out what's going on. Um, and uh, we're probably uh, not meant to ask uh, which particular sound, but the whole unusual experience of the Spirit coming upon them uh, is what uh, gathered these men. Um, we have several words for surprise. Maybe that's the common denominator here. Um, which ones do you see as you skim over uh, verses 5 through 13? Bewilderment, amazed and astonished, and perplexed. So when an author looks like he's writing from a thesaurus, uh, what point is he usually trying to make? It's hard to put it in words. These, this crowd is surprised and confused and perplexed in just about every possible way you can imagine. So he uses words that focus more on the idea of being unable to explain something. Um, there's uh, one word here which is almost the equivalent of our clueless. Uh, you don't have anything you can draw on to help you understand what you're seeing and hearing. Uh, you have the idea of surprise, that this is a wonder that goes beyond normal human experience. Uh, the same words that are used uh, often to describe miracles. Uh, and you have this uh, one word that uh, in English gives us ecstasy, uh, which is a little bit of a false cognate. It means to uh, stand outside yourself. Now, we have a similar expression. We say, 
uh, he was what? Beside himself, uh, and that can be good or bad things, right? He was beside himself with joy. He was beside himself with anger. Um, that's the way the Greek word works. Uh, so these men are it's such an experience for them uh, that they are beside themselves uh, in their amazement and wonder and simply can't find a way to explain what's going on. Still nothing? Okay. Yeah, so what is a proselyte? A convert? Uh, sort of. And maybe I don't even need to say sort of. Uh, because, well, I used to joke about this congregation my family attended for a, a few years in another center of Lutheranism, uh, that you were uh, considered a new member for the first three generations. Uh, <laughs> Proselytes were people who had embraced in faith the God of Israel, but they weren't Jews. So would they ever quite be us? Well, it seems like sometimes they were, but a lot of times they were always regarded as proselytes or converts or people who feared God. Um, so the circle uh, is meant to draw as many people as you can imagine who would say they were believers uh, in the God of what we would think of the God of the Bible, right? the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, who is also the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the God of our New Testament. Uh, so Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, those people who were close by, those people who were far off, those people who were um, by blood Jews, those people who were by confession uh, part of Israel. Uh, they were all gathered there. And notice, that's the group that's amazed and perplexed. Um, you know, not visiting Germans uh, who knew nothing about the Bible, but people who've been raised, uh, been shaped and formed by this word of God, they couldn't understand it. Um, it... Uh, Makes you think this is a sort of like a small aftershock of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which also amazed and astounded and perplexed people who had grown up knowing the prophets, knowing Moses, knowing the Psalms, and they still didn't understand. They still didn't have a clue, a way to explain what was going on. Well, Peter's about uh, to answer that for them. But one last thing, and then we'll, we'll close. Uh, the last line of verse 13, which fortunately isn't the end of the chapter, uh, the end of the story is what? They're filled with new wine. Now, why would they say that? Well, we don't see any break in the description of the crowd, right? No, they, don't, they don't say it, but I wonder if right. there was an element among the crowd. So the crowd is sort of divided here, and, and probably there would have been certainly Pharisees, maybe uh, temple staff, maybe priests as well. People, uh, from the, people from the existing church. Right. So they're all amazed but some say this. Now, I mean, if we heard some, or saw someone at church on Sunday morning and said, I think he's been into the wine, what would that suggest? He's drunk? Well, not just unusual, but very inappropriate way. Right? That there's no reason... This man should have been drinking this much on Sunday morning at church. And I think a lot of people misunderstand this that way. Now, there's part of that in here. But why would they immediately conclude they are filled with new wine, especially new wine? 
Well, what was Pentecost celebrating? The earliest harvest. So the new wine is the wine you sample to see is this going to be a good vintage or not. Um, the, a better Greek word might be sweet. Uh, it's just in the first stages of that whole process of fermentation. Um, so it actually would be fairly natural for them to be sampling the new wine as part of the celebration of the Pentecost uh, early harvest. It's not really excusable that you would have so much you were acting crazy or irresponsible. Uh, but there is a connection here between that, that uh, mocking and what's actually happening that day, uh, the way we might say to someone, uh, he's a little bit too full of the Christmas spirit. Uh, if he gets a little bit it is overcast and 81 degrees at 1030, 1031 for that matter, at KFUO.